All right, guys. Well, uh, very interesting passage tonight. Uh, we're going to be going through Mark chapter 1. If you go to Mark chapter 1, start at verse 21. So just uh, for those of you, yeah, most of you usually come. Uh, the vision for Sunday nights, um, while you turn in your Bibles, I'm just going to tell you, our, our vision for Sunday nights, the band and minds, our, our vision is that it'd be a worship night, you know, the, that, you know, we would worship a little bit and then we get into the word and that through God's word, we're inspired to worship him even more. All right. So then we have a little bit of a longer worship set at the end. Eventually, I kind of want I want to do communion every single Sunday night. You know, where we can just come and we can remember what Christ has done for us. And so um, I'm excited for Sunday nights and I'm excited to see what God has in store. So with that being said, let's get into the word. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. Then they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered a synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And then, and then everyone were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. God, and, and I recognize, Lord, that I am so ill-equipped to teach on a subject such as this, Lord. Father, I have absolutely zero authority here. Lord, I don't, I don't even have authority outside of here among anyone, Lord. Uh, Father, I, I just, I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that, that you would dwell in this place tonight, Father. God, that you would intercede on our behalf, Lord, and that you, Lord, would be the one preaching and not me. Lord, may I decrease so that you may increase, Lord. And as we go into this touchy subject of authority, Lord, I just pray, God, that we would uh, be open to what your word has to say. And so we love you, Jesus, and we praise you for what you're going to do tonight. We really, really, Lord, with all of our hearts, praise you, God, in this time of study. We love you, and in Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. Amen. Right on. So, once again, starting out in a little bit of context, uh, Jesus is in Capernaum, all right? Capernaum is kind of Jesus' home base for ministry, okay? It's where all of his disciples and him get together. They, they dwell in there. They pray together. Then they go out. They come back. They dwell, you know, they go out. They come back. They go out, right? And so Capernaum is kind of their home base. It's a very uh, large amount of ministry God, that was done there by Jesus, and in the synagogue, there was no one specific teacher, okay? There was no one man, just like we have Pastor Rob and then myself on Sunday nights, who, who is always the teacher here. Uh, that's not how it was in the synagogues. Uh, they would always cycle through different teachers in the synagogues. And, and most likely, and more often than not, there was guest speakers, guest rabbis that would come in from all around. And, and, and this was done for, for a couple reasons. One reason was that so no one would worship a rabbi, 
right? You know, we didn't want, they didn't want pastor worship, okay? And that's how it originally started out. But then it eventually got to this point where they, the best synagogues had the celebrity preachers, if that makes sense. That if it was a good synagogue, they got like Rabbi Hillel, like that man was the bomb, okay? He knew how to exposit some crazy Torah, okay? He, he, knew, how to, he knew how to throw down. And so it become a competition in the synagogues to whoever can get the best preacher, okay? And, and, and so really, much like today, there were traveling preachers who would come and teach, and Jesus, being a big name in this day, Jesus is starting to have this huge name for himself. He was asked to preach in this synagogue. And, and we can only assume that there were a lot of people that had flocked to each synagogue that Jesus had preached, he was very, very famous at this point. Jesus started out as a nobody. Nobody knew him. He was just this random car- carpenter from Nazareth. But now he's entered into the stage of his ministry where he's healing people. He, the blind are seeing and the lame are walking. Okay? And people are going nuts for Jesus. Okay? It's like the time where Alistair Begg came and taught here. There was like twice the amount of people that we usually have on Sunday morning attendance. Right? And, and so it was the same thing with when Jesus came. People would flock. People were amazed and enraptured at Jesus' teaching. Okay? There were some people that have, have heard tons of people. For 30 plus years, they have been going to the synagogue. And Jesus comes into the scene, and he preaches in a way where people are in complete and total awe. They're enraptured with the way he speaks. They're enraptured with the way that he exposits scripture. They're enraptured with the way that he claims the word of God with such authority, almost like he knows God personally, like he's his son or something. Okay? So so Jesus comes in with authority behind his words that are compelling to every single listener. Every preacher that you have ever heard is completely boring compared to the way that Jesus probably taught. Jesus taught with so much authority. And the rabbis weren't without knowledge of that day. It's not that perhaps Jesus taught in a way where he was saying things that, that weren't in Scripture already. Jesus was not saying anything new as far as when he would preach in the synagogues. But he taught it in a way where people realized, oh my God, that's what it means. <laughs> That's what it means. And, and so the rabbis were not without knowledge. They were abundant in knowledge. And the Bible had become an object of academia for them. This is how the rabbis would teach. They would lose all of their authority because they, they would go so deep into Scripture that they would somehow lose the big picture. When you, when you zero in on one specific subject so deep, sometimes it's hard to get the wider perspective. It's the same thing with Christianity and with your faith. If you zero in on one little specific aspect, very often you will lose the entire picture, which is Jesus. You'll lose the entire subject, which is Jesus. And, and, and for somebody like me, I tend to obsess over little things. There, there's been great divides over things in Scripture, over two or three verses in Scripture have divided denominations. And in that, people have lost the big picture, which is unity under Christ. 
This is what had happened to the rabbis. And it got to a point where they would quote passages from other rabbis to get their authority. And this is why what Jesus was saying was blowing their minds because he wasn't quoting anyone but God himself. People had gone to a point where they're like, well, Rabbi Hillel said this. Rabbi Joash said this. Rabbi Calvin said this. Rabbi Luther said this. You get what I'm saying? People got to this point where they had actually replaced the word, words of men, with the word, they had replaced the word of God with the words of men who loved the word of God. Does that make sense? They had replaced the word of God with words of men who loved the word of God. People, if preachers ever start quoting men more than they quote God, leave the church. Period. I have to color code all of my notes to make sure, and I I color code all of the scripture in red. And if there's not enough red, if there's not enough scripture in my sermon, I toss it. There has to be scripture. Stop quoting people and start quoting God. And that's where the authority came from. That's where Jesus' authority came from. That was what was so magnificent about the way Jesus taught. He just knew God. He was, he was God. So obviously he taught with authority of God. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5-6, through six, it says, Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you. And you both be found a liar. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The, pe- the Jews at this point, they had gotten so intellectual that they had lost the fact that the, the word of God is meant to equip them for good works. You see, there's some people where they speak in a way where they're drawing all of their information from man. And those are the type of people that lose all authority. There's absolutely no weight to what they're saying. There's no authority. When Jesus spoke, it was like a boxing match in their brains. Hashtag mind blown. People were going nuts, okay? People were going nuts when Jesus spoke because it was the word of God. I'm going to say it again and again and again. People's minds were blown. And Psalm 119 verse 127, uh, David says, I love your commandments more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. The word is supreme, ladies and gentlemen. The word is supreme. And, 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 and the rabbis had gotten in every single little translation and every single little detail towards the point where the people, the congregation, the normal workers, they, they come in and they want to hear the word of God, but they hear this man speaking gibberish. Have you ever listened to a sermon where, where a preacher has more Latin roots than he does actual English words? It's frustrating. It's just frustrating when people get so deep into doctrine where you just can't even understand them anymore. I just want to let you know that Jesus said, feed my lambs, not feed my giraffes. Okay? 
He said, feed my lambs, not feed my giraffes. He didn't say, make the word of God, only so people with really, really big faith can understand it. If a preacher is too theological and too complicated for, I would say, a 10-year-old to understand, he's not preaching very well. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Lambs are easy to feed. Never, when, when, when you're trying to communicate the gospel to somebody. And, and, and I, have, I have a friend who I would go street witnessing with. And, and he would just go straight into, you know, Jesus, the propitiation for your sins. And, you know, he's the, you know it's like, okay, you're using these large words. And this guy doesn't even, he's never been to church. What makes you think he's going to know what propitiation means? Right? Transubstitiation, perpliciation. Like, it's like, what? Level with people when you talk with them. Just, just say the word of God. It's so simple. When Jesus spoke, he used paral- uh, parallels and, and parables like, like a farmer who spreads seeds. Like a man who grows crops. The good Samaritan. All these stories that Jesus would use, they're ones that we, and, and, and the people back then, they, they can identify with and they can understand it and they can say, yes, I get it. Don't overcomplicate the word of God, though it is so deep. In your own personal study, man, is that fun to go straight into the direct translation and the Latin and the Greek. That's awesome. But when preaching, make sure that the only authority is God's authority and the authority of his word. Amen? You see, when I, when I look at this, yeah, it, it, there's demons, but the, the passage isn't about demons. It's about Jesus, and it's about his authority. And, you know, I was going to come up here, and I was going to speak demonology to all of you, and I, I was going to tell you about all of that, but then I'm like, that's stupid. How many of you have encountered demons? Raise your hand. I mean, I mean, uh, there's some of us that, are, that have encountered, like, lit- possession. I have, I have witnessed it. But everyday stuff? Come on. Now, about those demons. Now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, there are two major views that are equally dangerous when it comes to demons and Satan and the spiritual realm. Okay? There are two different, completely opposite views, but equally as dangerous. There's one view where there are no demons... And, and anyone who claims to be demon-possessed or oppressed by demons, it can be easily solved through modern medicine and medication. Okay? There's people on that end. Then there's also the people on this end where demons are everywhere. <laughs> like, people stub their toe and, and they curse the devil. They're like, the devil did it, right? Like, like the devil, the devil is everywhere. And these are like the hyper spiritual. I'm just like, okay, the devil is not 
everywhere. It's like the, it's in my town, it's in my house, it's under my bed, it's in my closet, it's in my smoothie. I can't get away from Satan. Okay, it, it, it's just it's it's everywhere. And people curse the devil. They stub their toe and they're like spiritual oppression. That's not. And it's like it's that's not how it works. You know, and and there are demons, but they're not concerned with trivial things like we tend to think. I, I, I have a friend who, who just claims that it's spiritual warfare with everything. Like their internet's laggy and it's spiritual warfare for them. And it's like, it's not. That's not spiritual warfare. That's your flesh. And it's like the water heater's broken. Spiritual warfare. That's not it. Okay? And, and it, it, people even, they're like, the devil, he's trying to sway all the elections. I don't think Satan really cares. And I, I got to say this very carefully. I don't think Satan is in the business of swaying elections. I don't think Satan is in the business of infiltrating certain areas of our lives that are trivial and have nothing to do with Jesus. Their sole purpose, demons, Satan, his sole purpose is to redirect your worship away from Jesus in any way he possibly can. And that can manifest itself in many, many different ways. Many different ways. That's Satan's purpose. And so, I, I, I always hesitate to say that Satan controls certain people around me when they really have nothing to, they don't impact my spiritual life at all. Does that make sense? I always hesitate to say that Satan has a part in something that actually ha- has no spiritual value. If that makes sense. Now, Satan will oppress you, and you can open the door for him to come into certain parts. It, it, uh, we, we, Paul describes in Ephesians that don't give Satan a foothold, which means things in the world will give Satan a foothold to come into your life, and he will oppress you with whatever he can. Music, internet, anything. Don't give Satan a foothold. Satan gets a foothold when you what? Sin. And so, I want to make sure that we know that Satan's purpose is not to rule the world. Satan doesn't need any glory for himself. He wants to redirect the glory away from Jesus. That is his purpose. He doesn't care if you worship him, as long as you're not worshiping Jesus. That is his sole purpose. To make sure you are not worshiping the God he despises. And he will do whatever he can to make sure that happens. Now, we get this idea of Satan. We we, we understand who Satan is and who fallen angels are through Ezekiel chapter 28, Revelation chapter 12, and Isaiah 14 are the main passages that I'm going to use. And I'm going to paraphrase for all of you Satan. Okay? And it will give us a huge inside look of the dynamics of Satan and the fallen angels. We believe that Satan is a created being of the highest rank, okay? 
He's a created being of the highest rank. He was once called the anointed cherub of that covereth in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14. He was described as full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. That's Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12. He was the most beautiful angel that there was. Absolutely stunning. One of the highest created beings. One of the most beautiful creations that you could ever find. He was the embodiment of created perfection. And apparently led the worship of the universe. As it declares in verses 14 and 15. Satan was a worship leader. Satan was a worship leader. He led all of creation in an anthem towards the glory of God. One of the most beautiful created beings leading worship of all creation towards the creator. He was in the mountain of God where God manifests his glory and was perfect in his ways until iniquity developed in him. And his worship went from outward to inward. His heart became lifted up because of his beauty. And his wisdom was corrupted because of his brightness. It was pride that redirected Satan's worship. And Satan, being a worship leader, now knows how to redirect your worship because of pride. Satan, being the ultimate worship leader, knowing how to bring creation and creatures into worship and an anthem towards God. He knows what you want to worship. He knows what you desire. He knows what your flesh wants. And he's going to do whatever he can to have different music playing. Unholy ambition and jealousy ruined him that we see in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And he led the host of angels in rebellion against God and Christ. And that's where we have fallen angels. And that's where we get demons. As a result, he was cast out of the mountain of God, Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 16, and down to the ground of the earth, verses 17 and Isaiah 14, verse 12. One thing I want to make clear, and I'm going to, I'm going to reiterate this later. Spiritual warfare, for all of you listening and for all of you taking notes, spiritual warfare is not two opposing kingdoms. It's not two equal kingdoms, good and evil, coming and clashing together. Spiritual warfare is a civil war. The rebels led by Satan. Okay? Satan does not have an equally powerful army against the heavenly hosts. He is merely one-third of the kingdom, trying to dominate when there's absolutely no way he's going to prevail. And for some of you, you're like, ah, oh, man, you know, I don't know about all this spiritual warfare stuff. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I buy it. I don't know if I want to believe it. I don't know if I really want to pay any attention to this whole concept of demons and this whole concept of spiritual warfare because honestly, when am I ever going to need this knowledge? Your knowledge of spiritual warfare, your knowledge of demons, your knowledge of Satan is going to drastically affect the way you pray. 
and the way you minister to others. Let's look back at the text. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. And when they were all amazed, and, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now, I tend to reject the whole concept of demons. I tend to reject the whole concept of spiritual warfare. I'm just one of those people, you know. I'm one of the people who skews the other way where it's like I I really, you know, there's not a lot of spiritual warfare happening. There's not a lot of demons out there. I really don't feel spiritually oppressed that greatly. You know, we we talked about the the two different types of people. I, I really do lean towards this way where I don't recognize the heavenly hosts enough. I don't recognize spiritual warfare enough. And, 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 and I wondered, and I was really pondering in my heart, like, why I do that? Why, why don't I really recognize that whole spiritual realm? Why, why don't I really recognize the whole concept of demons and spiritual warfare? And, and I, I, I feel like a huge part of it is because I absolutely despise evil having any authority over my life. Okay? I, I really despise the whole concept of evil having any power, having that I can't control. Bad stuff happens in my life because of the sin that I do. I can, I can deal with that. But if bad stuff happens because of something that was outside of my control, that's when I kind of start to freak out. And I don't really want to recognize that. So I'll try to find somebody to blame. When in reality, it's spiritual warfare. And when I think about demons, you know, I don't like demons having any authority over my family, over my friends, my motives, my actions, my thoughts. I hate that. I don't want that. I don't want to recognize that there can be somebody in my head influencing the way I think. I don't want my authority over my own life to be gone. I, I, I don't want to relinquish any of that. And, and this, was, this, was, this is what I had to come to terms with. That, that my struggles with demons and my struggles with spiritual warfare was really coming out of the fact that I don't want to give up any authority that I want over my own life. I don't want evil having any authority over me. And that's why I reject demons. Now, I want to tell you this, that all of our struggles, all of our hardship, all of our trials that we go through in life, if it's a product of our own mistakes, we can fix it, right? We, at least we feel like we can. We feel like we have some sort of control. If it's a product, if some of the turmoil is a product of our, of our own doing, we somehow feel like, well, we, we can reconcile that. We can repent and we can try our hardest to really repent of that. But if it's a product of some spiritual oppression, we, we lose some hope. We lose some hope because what can you do? What can you do about demons? What, what can you do when you have a family member that is seriously oppressed, which I do? I have a cousin who I, 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 I just reconnected with. We grew up thick as, uh, we would tell people that we were twins. She's spiritually oppressed. 
And I felt it. It was not just a product. She gave the enemy a foothold through the sins that she committed, but she was oppressed. And I can feel it. And so I lose hope when that happens. I lose hope when, when, when demons have control over any aspect of my life. If you would turn to me to Hebrews chapter 2. This is a very important passage in Scripture. And this is what gives me comfort. When I kind of lose that hope. Because there's something in our lives that we have absolutely no control over. Amen? Am I the only one? There's, there's just some things in my life that I have no control over. The outcome the way other people react to it, I have absolutely zero control. Now, you guys may have different lifestyles. I mean, maybe you guys have everything under control, but I sure don't. And so I go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. And this speaks of Jesus. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subject to angels. Now, what are demons? Demons. Fallen angels. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subject to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things into subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see the things that are put under him. But we see Jesus, who has made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, may taste death for everyone. I can't always see demonic oppression around me, even though it is incredibly real. I have witnessed it. Go to other countries, guys. I mean, in America... Satan doesn't need to spiritually possess anyone. We mess it up ourselves, okay? In our pride, we just, I don't believe in any of it. Satan doesn't need, really, to possess people here, though he does sometimes. If you go to another country, you will see it all over the place. It's sick. I went to Indonesia, walking the streets of Bali, Literally, people clawing at themselves because they're so possessed and oppressed. Spiritual warfare is real. And that scares me. I can't always see demonic oppression that surrounds me. I can't always identify the problem that's, and that scares me. I can't always identify this. Have you ever had that feeling where you just feel oppressed, you feel depressed, you feel tired, and you don't know why? You just don't know why. And, and you don't want to give any credit to demons. You just be, ah, oh, I need more sleep. But then you wake up and you're still depressed and tired. Some people will take antidepressants and they're still depressed and tired. And that scares me that I can't do anything about that. I have no authority in that realm. I I, I have no authority over any of it. But it says right here, 
But we see Jesus, who has made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, may taste death for everyone. I can't identify the problem all the time. I don't have authority over a lot of things, but I can see Jesus who has put to death sin and has now put everything under his feet. Everything is under his feet. Everything is under the authority of Christ and the gospel. Everything. Nothing is exempt from the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And that's something I have to come to terms with. The demons, they tremble at his name. They convulse and, and, and tremble at the very sight of Jesus. And the words that he speaks makes them freak. They know who he is. They know what he can do to them. They know that they have no power, no authority over Jesus. All of our struggles, all of our pain, all of our trials, forget about demons, just trials in general. Just screwed up life in general. Struggles in general is all under the feet of the gospel. It's all there. Every single part of your life, every struggle and all of the pain is under the feet of Jesus. He has tasted death for you. You don't have to suffer like he did. You don't have to be subject at the hands of suffering. You don't have to be captive by the struggles of this world. You don't have to be shackled by other people's sin. You are set free completely by the gospel. Jesus has tasted all of the death, all of the punishment, all of everything, so that he may put under his feet everything and claim authority for himself. And, and, and this is something... I, I told my junior hires, and my eighth graders graduated today, and I was super sad to see him leave, but, but it's awesome. They're going on to high school, and it's going to be sweet. But, but this was the last message I gave them, and, it, and it's something that's very contrary to this day and age. In American culture, everything. I told them to give up. I just said, give up. I told my junior hires, I told these kids who have a bright, bright future, I just said, give up. Give up. There's nothing you can do to keep yourself from being oppressed. Give up. Let Jesus do it all. Give up and completely immerse yourself in his power. I'm going to close with Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Most of you know this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of who? God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Ladies and gentlemen, this war is not two opposing kingdoms. It is a civil war. And it is God's war. And Jesus' fight. Notice 
how Paul doesn't say, defend yourselves in your might. Devote yourselves to studying scripture so that you won't go through struggles. Doesn't say, equip yourselves with your sword of the spirit. No, he says, take up the armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, his might. You got to know this, that it's not your armor. It's not your armor. It's God's armor. It's God's armor. And that should comfort you, knowing that it's God's fight, not yours. And that spiritual oppression has absolutely no authority over you because you're in Christ. And so what I want for us tonight, knowing that Satan is a worship leader and his goal is to revert your worship and lead your worship elsewhere, I want to worship, I want to shakah in a way where we give all authority to Christ and let him fight for us. Because there's no way that we can do it. No way that we can do it. Worship, shakah, means to prostrate yourself, bow down, and put yourself, your face onto the floor. When your face is on the floor, is anything below you? No. Is God below you? No. He's way above you. Worship is putting God above you and giving him authority. That's what worship is. And knowing that Sunday nights are going to be worship nights, we got to give God the authority before we can worship in spirit and in truth, correct? We don't worship in a way where we're like, ah, do you know what? The music could be a little better. I wish, you know, the lights were a little different. You know, I mean, ah, these chairs are okay. We worship in a way where Jesus has complete authority. And all of your problems, all of your struggles, you're just saying, Jesus, it's at your feet. You have crushed them already at the cross. Gospel-centered worship is this. Pay attention. Gospel-centered worship is this. Recognizing that the only one worthy of your praise is the one who has taken all of your struggles away. Worship is not listening to music. It's not warming up for the message. It's not an opportunity for you to exit early. It is an opportunity for you to come into the throne room of God and ask the Holy Spirit to come so the presence of God is so thick. The presence of the Holy Spirit is so incredibly thick that the demons choke and can't breathe in the presence of God's people. Call upon God tonight as we worship. Call upon his name and ask him to have authority in this place so no demon can breathe in this place that they would choke at the presence of God because if you ask him to leave he's not going to go if you ask him to leave he's not going to go but if God asks him to go he's out of there Lord I pray God that tonight we would worship and in spirit and in truth tonight recognizing that Jesus you have all of authority Lord, we recognize that there's nothing in and of ourselves, Lord, that we can do 
God, to release this oppression from ourselves. All of our struggles, Lord, God, I pray that we would just lay it at your feet, Lord, at the feet of Jesus. Lord, you have crucified your son so that we don't have to experience the oppression of sin anymore. Lord, we worship you as grateful creatures to their creator, Lord. Help us humble ourselves tonight in worship. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Let's worship tonight, amen? Amen.